You can turn with me in your Bibles, the book of Luke, chapter 21. While you're turning there, if someone were to ask you, who is the most significant nation on earth in our day and age? How do you suppose you'd respond? Well, I think we ask the average person, uh, some would say, well, obviously the United States, because we're the 800-pound military and economic gorilla on the world's block. Still others would say, well, that seems to be changing. We're not even really sure that the dollar is going to be the currency of trade uh, much longer. It seems like China and other nations like that are flexing their military and economic muscles. Who knows? Still others would say, well, you know, I think as far as the most strategic nation in the world right now, it's a relatively obscure Eastern European nation that most of us would be hard-pressed to find on a map called the Ukraine. I mean, it seems like with all the saber-rattling going on and even talk about World War III, that would definitely get a few votes as the most influential and strategic nation on earth. But if we were to ask God the same thing, I think he would give us a very different and surprising answer. In the book of Ezekiel, chapter 5 and verse 5, God said that he set Israel as the centerpiece among all nations. God looks at Israel and says, Israel is the straw that stirs the drink. Now, that's a pretty remarkable statement when you stop and consider the reality of what Israel is all about. It's a nation not much bigger, really, than New Jersey in landmass, and a good half of that is barely inhabitable desert. It doesn't really have a whole lot of natural resources to speak of, although they've discovered natural gas off their coast, which could upset that apple cart. And we look at Israel, and if you've ever been there, you know there are places where you can look, uh, Mount Carmel being one of them, and see the borders of Israel from one side to the other. Now, we look at that, and from a worldly point of view, we might find ourselves saying, why then is Israel so important? Well, in God's program, as Israel goes, so goes the world. In fact, this morning, we are going to discover not only how crucial Israel was, is, and will be in God's program, but we'll discover that in these chaotic times, in these times where we're like, man, what in the world is going to happen next, where you know, anxiety and depression are skyrocketing off the charts, the wise person keeps their eyes focused on Israel. Why? Because Israel and God's plans for Israel are absolutely essential to understand if we're going to understand God's prophetic plan to right this world gone wrong. Let's explore that this morning. We pick things up in our study in Luke chapter 21 and verse 20. Jesus speaking about the last days, the end times, uh, really a view of life from Jesus' time speaking, roughly around 30, 33 A.D., all the way through to eternity, said this, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. And let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of her depart. And let not those who are in the country enter her. For these are the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe to those who are pregnant 
and those who were nursing babies in those days. For there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now, Jesus remarks here, especially if you're just dropping in with us, if you haven't been following along with this powerful section of Scripture in Luke chapter 21, have everything to do with a very uh, eye-opening prediction that Jesus made way back in Luke chapter 21 and verse 5. There we are told, then as some spoke of the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and donations. He said, the things which you see, the days will come in which not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. So they asked him, saying, teacher, but when will these things be? And what sign will there be when these things are about to take place? Well, we see that Jesus is pointing to what arguably would be in the Jewish mind the most solid, the most stable, the most you can count on this just like it could count on the sun coming up tomorrow feature of their lives. The temple in Jerusalem. You remember this last time we spoke about how Josephus discovered what a magnificent structure it was, the architecture involved, the, the, the beauty that this master architect, Herod the Great, had invested in it. That at the time of Jesus, it had been 48 years in the building and would not actually be fully completed until 67 AD. It was something to behold. It was as rock solid as anything you could ever encounter in this life. And Jesus said, it's going down. It's going down in such a way that not one stone is going to be left upon another. We spoke of how if you take a trip with us to Israel and go to the area known as the Temple Mount, you discover that Jesus' prediction was literally fulfilled. And again, if you want to explore that a little bit historically, get the, uh, the teaching from last time as to how God managed to pull that off. But you go to that Temple Mount area, and it is absolutely flat. The only thing that you will see on that Temple Mount are the two Islamic shrines that are now built there as Islam's way of trying to make sure that the temple doesn't get rebuilt again. So Jesus' prediction uh, came to pass in an absolute precise way, and, and it's uh, just a beautiful picture of how on-target Bible prophecy really is. But Jesus now goes on and makes a further prediction, a prediction with a very interesting implication for those who are going to see it fulfilled. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, let those who are in the midst of her depart, and let not those who are in the country enter her. For these are the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who have nursing babies in those days. For there will be great distress in this land and wrath upon this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive to all nations. Well, once again, here we see that God, when he judges, and the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, according to Jesus, Notice he uses two words to describe it. It is a day of vengeance, and it is a day of God's wrath. Now, whenever God pours out his wrath in a judgmental way, there is a remarkable pattern 
that God uses. He always makes provision for his people. When God judges and he does interrupt the affairs of man to judge, there's no collateral damage involved. In other words, God never misses when he aims his judgment gun. And this is a great example of this. Uh, When the uh, Romans came and held the final siege of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, we spoke a bit about the history behind all of that, that this had been a three-year war that had gone on. It, it, It kicked off, believe it or not, in a property dispute in a tiny seaside village by the name of Caesarea, The Jews had a synagogue there, and a fellow didn't like Jews very much. She was the property owner next door, kept building additions to his building that cut off access to the synagogue. And finally, uh, a fight broke out between the Jews trying to get into the synagogue and this property owner spilled over into the streets and ignited this fuse of conflict that went all the way to Jerusalem. The Jews had said, we have had enough of Roman rule. We're going to do something about it now. And so war began to break out, and initially the Jews had many victories against the Romans because it kind of caught the Romans flat-sandaled, if you will, uh, when, it, when it happened. But uh, the emperor at that time, a fellow by the name of Vespasian, said, we're going to deal with this. So he dispatched his son, a fellow by the name of Titus, as a Roman general to oversee this uh, destruction, if you will, this judgment against Jerusalem. And uh, as a result, uh, the devastation that Jesus describes here uh, was absolutely tremendous. According to Josephus, the Jewish historian, well over a million Jews perished in the final siege against Jerusalem. But with one significant exception, the uh, early church historian, a fellow by the name of Eusebius, talked about a group of individuals that got out of Dodge before judgment fell. They were the Christians who were there at that time. And, uh, you know, Eusebius talks about the fact that they paid attention to what he called an oracle that warned them of the impending disaster. Now, this works a couple of ways. First of all, those who were there in Jerusalem at AD 70 had access to Jesus' words that he spoke here. He goes, oh boy, <laughs> they say, oh boy, look, everything that Jesus talked about is happening right now. We need to beat feet and get out of here. Eusebius goes on and adds another interesting detail. He talks about how an oracle, a prophetic word, was given to the church at Jerusalem that directed them to go to a place that is in modern Jordan, the ruins of a place called Pella. You can see them in our day. But Pella was a very significant city at that time. It was uh, developed as a uh, honorary to the place where Alexander the Great's father was born. It was named after that. The main Pella is in Macedonia. But uh, this Pella was sort of a replica of that. And so the church, pretty much en masse, left Jerusalem and headed far to the northeast and hung out in Pella and so avoided the destruction Jesus predicted. Now, the reason I point this out to you is this, whenever we see God move in judgment, there is a pattern that the Scripture portrays for us that is very real and relevant to the days that we live in today. In fact, if you've got a Bible handy, turn with me to Matthew chapter 24 real quickly. In Matthew chapter 24 and verse 36, the parallel account of Jesus' remarks here, Jesus said this, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, 
but my father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For in the days, as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, the other left. Watch, therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. Now, here we see this prophetic pattern that we saw demonstrated in the fall of Jerusalem, but applied to the ultimate time of judgment. That is when God pours out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting, not just nation, but a world. What is going to happen? Jesus said it was going to be like the days of Noah. Now, the days of Noah were really significant. What Jesus said is it was business as usual. People buying and selling, marrying and giving in marriage till the day that Noah entered the ark, and then judgment fell. Now, from that, we can discern a pattern, and we see it not just in Noah's flood. We also see it in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and as well, Jesus' prediction of the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. God, when he is going to move in wrath, number one, always provides, catch this, a prophetic warning. We are told in the Scripture that uh, God told the people of Noah's day that their days would be 120 years. The Bible also tells us that Noah wasn't just building the ark. He was a preacher of righteousness during that time. In other words, the people of Noah's day had 120 years of prophetic warning as to what was going to take place. The second step, whenever God moves in judgment, is this. God always provides a provision for his people. In Noah's case, it was obviously the ark. And once Noah and his family, the animals were in the ark, God closed the doors. Noah didn't have to swim for the ark. There was no treading water among God's people, right? But only when God's people were provided for, then judgment fell. Well, this is exactly the pattern that we see here. Jesus is speaking in 33 A.D. Jerusalem fell in 70 A.D. There was more than enough opportunity, more than enough time to be warned and get out of harm's way as far as this wrath was concerned. Same thing is true in our day, believe it or not. Right now, we are living in what I would believe is an unprecedented outreach of prophetic warning to the world. The fact that you and I are talking about Bible prophecy today, I believe, is part of this pattern. God wants to get the word out. Judgment's coming, but I've provided a way out for you. Take it before it's too late. Then a provision is made for God's people. We don't have an ark, but we do have the event. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 15 and following describes the rapture of the church. God has not destined us for wrath, but for salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so God will snatch us out before the storm if we belong to him. But only after God's people are snatched out before the storm will judgment fall. And boy, when judgment falls, it falls pretty heavily. And we'll explore that in just a moment. Notice Jesus then goes on and makes another interesting statement. And Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. In other words, there was going to be an indeterminate amount of time from the destruction of the temple 
to the time when these final events would begin to take place that Jesus refers to as the times of the Gentiles. Now, notice the times of the Gentiles can be seen in a couple different lights in Scripture. Some believe that the times of the Gentiles are the times of Gentile control over the land of Israel. And we'll talk in just a moment as to whether, you know, the times of the Gentiles actually have been fulfilled or, or whether it's still off in the future in just a moment. But I really believe that the times of the Gentiles, if you really want to define it scripturally, can be described for us in a very uh, on-target way in the book of Romans chapter 11, beginning at verse 25. There the Apostle Paul writing about God's plan for the Jewish people. And what he has in mind for them in the future said this, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins." Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Now notice, God still has a plan for the Jewish people. Why? Because God made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And please understand this, because there is no more real and relevant truth for you and me and our walk with God today than this. God keeps his promises to all his people. Not a single promise of God falls through the cracks, including the promise that he made to national Israel. I mean, consider what God says in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 33. In Jeremiah chapter 33 and verse 25, we read, Thus says the Lord, If my covenant is not with day and night, and if I have not appointed the ordinances of heaven and earth, then I will cast away the descendants of Jacob and David my servant. So I will not take any of his descendants to be rulers over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For I will cause their captives to return and will have mercy on them. Now, notice what God's saying. I am not done with Israel. God still has a plan for the Jewish people. If you want to understand what that plan is all about, boy, I highly recommend you come on out on Wednesday nights as we're going through the book of Revelation. You want to talk about a thoroughly Jewish book. It is impossible to understand the revelation we find in Revelation without seeing that God is faithful to keep his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants. And you know, I love that. There are a lot of Christians these days who go, well, you know, the Jews, they rejected Jesus when he came the first time, and, and so he's turned to us Gentiles, and we Gentiles are so wonderful, God doesn't need to deal with the Jews anymore. Well, <laughs> I, I highly advise those people to take a look at church history and see how wonderful we've really been. That's another story. But the fact of the matter is, God says that once the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, then all Israel will be saved. God will again deal with the world through the Jewish people. In other words, when the last Gentile, the last non-Jewish person, receives Jesus as his personal Savior, that God is foreordained to be part of this great invisible body made up of every professing believer in Christ we call the church. You see, the church is not a 
a building on 3850 North Commerce Center Drive. The church is the gathering together of all those who know God in a personal way. And God has been operating in this odd parenthesis, if you will, between the first and second coming of Christ, bringing us into a relationship with God we had no business to expect. We have no connection with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, yet God in his mercy and grace called people like you and me, including a Heinz 57 variety Gentile like myself, to know him in a personal way. You know what's so beautiful about that? God keeps his promises. When Israel became a nation again in 1948, we see God keeps his promises. When we see in this day and age, our good friend Joel Rosenberg in his best-selling book, Epicenter, pointed out that as a people group, as a percentage, more Jewish people are coming to faith in Jesus as their Savior than any other people group on earth. The, the move of God to draw Israel to himself is happening even in our midst. God keeps his promises. The reason that I'm kind of harping on you about this is, can I ask you an honest question here? I know we're in church, and I know, you know we've got a certain rep to keep up, but let me ask you an honest question. Let's just talk kind of heart to heart here for a second. You ever had a bout of the doubts? You know, when, when I have bouts of the doubts, uh, my doubts aren't about whether Jesus rose from the dead. I think the evidence is overwhelming. It, it isn't about whether the Bible is really the inspired Word of God. I, I think you can show that conclusively. You know what I doubt? I don't doubt God. I don't doubt His Word. I doubt me. You know, I'm like, huh. Man, God, you know, sometimes I get it right, and sometimes I get it wrong, and, you know, it's the three steps forward, two steps back, sob I go through in life, and don't you get tired of that, God? And I'm like, oh, man, is there any real, real hope for me? You ever have those moments where you feel like, wow, you know, how can God possibly continue to work in my life? Understand this. If you want to have a Christian life that is a ride on the roller coaster, Here's what I suggest you do. Focus in on what you do for God as the basis of your righteousness. Oh, I read my Bible today. Well, I must be right with God. Oh, I prayed 10 minutes before I got going. I must be right. I put something in the old agape box. That's got to be worth something. God, you got to get me a good parking place downtown later this week and got to balance the book. You, know, you, you want to ride the roller coaster. You know, put your faith and your confidence in what you do for God. Because some days you'll get it right, some days you'll get it wrong. It's an invite to a bout of the doubts. But here's how you get off the roller coaster. You don't focus in on what you do for God as the basis of your relationship with him. You focus in on what God has done for you and that he is a God who keeps his promises. Yeah, that's one of the reasons I love Israel, because I look at that and go, wow, there is a promise kept against all odds. Stop and think how many very well-organized regimes have committed themselves to the extermination of the Jews, and yet the Jews keep on going. Uh, sociologists look at the Jews, and they, they, they can't really understand why there's still a people group. Uh, there's this three-generation rule that says you take any people group out of their native homeland and uh, put them into another culture with another language, and pretty soon they become completely assimilated. A few years ago, I had a chance to meet some of my relatives from Sweden, and it was really amazing. It was such a tribute to the Swedish educational system 
because all of my relatives, say high school and above, spoke better English than we did. But all the ones high school and below, boy, they didn't speak a word of English. And it was so bizarre looking at this person who was my cousin and trying to say, this is a ball, 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 oh, ball. We play catch. Oh, you know what I mean? It's rudimentary. We had nothing in common, even though we were related. Why? Because my people who came over here and immigrated completely assimilated. Man, I'm no more Swedish than a man on the moon now. I, I go to Sweden, I'd be completely lost. But the Jews, how different that is. No matter where they've gone, no matter how much intense pressure has been put upon them to conform. The old Russian proverb, the nail that sticks up gets hammered down. History of the Jews. Why? Because they kept their national identity against all odds. And now they're back in the land. That tells me that God is faithful to his promises. And you know what else it tells me? It tells me another promise God makes is something you can take to the bank. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. We serve a faithful, true, and living God. And we see this in this picture of the fate of the Jews. Well, after this time out, if you will, this parenthesis, this time between Jesus' first coming, heading into a second coming, what is the world is going to happen when Israel, in a sense, comes back online? Well, take a look at verse 25. There we read, And there will be signs in the sun, in the moon, and in the stars, and in the earth distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and its waves roaring, men's hearts failing them for fear, and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now notice, when God begins to intervene directly in this world again, and it always kind of makes me smile when I hear people say, well, if God wants me to believe in him, why does he directly intervene in the world? Well, that's a great question. I'm not sure you'll like the answer when it actually starts to happen. Because God is going to judge not just people, but even this place. Why is God seemingly having it out for the creation? I'll tell you why. As according to Romans chapter 1, one of the sure signs that we as human beings, you know, I hear about the theory of evolution, you know, every day in every way we're getting better and better. You read Romans chapter 1 and you discover the reality of mankind is de-evolution. Ever since we turned our back on God, we've gotten bad and we're getting worse. But one of the sure signs that we hold down or, or suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness is we serve the creation rather than the creator. That's who we worship. Now, I'm not saying that you can't enjoy the creation. You know, there's nothing like, say, looking at the glories of a monsoon rainstorm or one of our classic Arizona sunsets to give you a great crash course on God appreciation. But if you focus in on what you're seeing, rather than who's behind it, you've missed it. You know, I always enjoyed sunsets growing up. Uh, where I grew up in Southern California, about 50 miles north of L.A., 10 miles from the coast, in kind of this hilly area, you could go up on the hill uh, where I used to run, and, and you could look all the way out and see the Channel Islands in the distance. You could see the Santa Barbara Channel in between that, the coast and, and these beautiful islands. And as, as the sun would go down, 
you'd see the water between the coast and the Channel Islands just turn into this amazing gold, shimmering. And then as the sun went lower and lower, just these incredible purples and reds and greens would just flood across the sky. And you'd see the islands out there just superimposed against uh, the, the final light of the day. And I always enjoyed watching that, but I'll never forget the first sunset I saw after receiving Jesus as my Savior. I always loved watching sunsets, but I, I just remember this thought coming over me going, wow, that's beautiful. Huh, you know what? I know the guy who made that. You see, if you focus in on the creation rather than the creator, you've missed it. And God will go to extreme lengths to get our attention off of that. Now, notice, after all of these things, these cataclysmic events, speaking of this great tribulation period that is yet to come on the earth, then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads, because your redemption draws near. Wow. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying, I'm coming back. And when I come back, it's not going to be a secret. It's not going to be some spiritual thing. It's not going to be someone that can song and dance who was a date setter or, or making some weird uh, pretension to be a prophet and they've got it wrong. When Jesus comes back, it is going to be painfully obvious to everyone concerned. Now, notice something. All people are going to see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. But notice Jesus brings it back to us. Now, when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. I love this because you know what it tells me? A, it tells me something. People will ask me, Scott, what do you think this world is coming to? I say, an end, at least under current management. But that's the key thing. Jesus said he's coming back. John chapter 14 and verse 1. What a powerful passage to keep in mind. In these days when anxiety when, it, when depression, when fear is running rampant in our society. Next time those sort of emotions come knocking on your door, remember what Jesus said. He said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many mansions. I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. See, what Jesus is saying is the wise person doesn't get so caught up in the Internet, doesn't get so caught up in the blatherings you hear on the alphabet networks. They miss the main point. You know, there are all kinds of people saying, oh, this world's falling apart. I love the statement that was made at the Calvary Pastors Conference on Prophecy last week because it's just gold if you can keep this at the forefront of your mind. This world isn't falling apart. It's falling together. Because everything Jesus told us would happen in the last days, the end times, beginning with Israel being back in the land, it's happening, kids. And that's a reason to look up and lift up your heads. Why? Because your redemption draws near. <laughs> we as Christians, because we understand these things, have a wonderful balance in our lives of realism when we look at how bad this world is right? But also rejoicing because we know that it's always darkest before the dawn, but the day's about to break. You know, one of my, my favorite prophetic scriptures is found in, in kind of an odd place, I guess, to find prophecy. 
Most people would look at the book of Daniel or the book of Revelation. To me, one of my favorite prophetic scriptures is in Romans chapter 13, beginning at verse 11. Speaking about the importance of keeping love first and foremost in our lives as believers, Paul wrote this, and do this knowing the time, that now it is high time to awaken out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us be, walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. The day of our salvation is nearer now than we first believed. This could be the day. Jesus never said, oh, well, this and this and this needs to happen first, and then I can come for you. No, the rapture is always an imminent event, and the wise believer will live that way. Again, our good friend Joel Rosenberg was famous for saying, if you are planning a major sin within your life, in light of what's going on in this world right now, I definitely put it off. <laughs> the Lord's coming, and he's coming soon. Well, we've seen that Jesus talks about the fate of the Jewish people, that they are going to be in a place scattered until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. We've also seen their future, that Jesus is going to come back again and rescue them at the edge of the Great Tribulation. But then Jesus culminates all of this with a really interesting figure of speech, a parable. Verse 29, it says, Then he spoke to them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they are already budding, you see and know for yourselves that summer is now near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Now notice Jesus paints a figure. He says, consider the fig tree and all trees. Jesus focuses in on one kind of tree, the fig tree. In fact, in Matthew, in Matthew 24, he doesn't mention the other trees. He just talks about the fig tree. In Matthew chapter 21, Jesus uses a fig tree as a graphic example of Israel's spiritual condition before God. And evidently, someone else got the memo. Do you know what the national symbol of Israel is? You know, and some people say, well, it's the Star of David, right? No, it's not. You know, the United States national symbol is what? It's an eagle. You know what Israel's national symbol is? It's a fig tree. And the fig tree is starting to blossom, gang. Notice Jesus said, when you see these things happening, you know the kingdom of God is near. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all things take place. Oh, boy, here we go. There have been people that have said, okay, Israel's a fig tree. 1948, Israel became a nation. Let's see, a generation in the Bible. Well, you know, in Exodus, it was 40 years, you know, till that generation died off in the wilderness. So add 40 years to 1948, and Jesus must come back in 1988. <clears throat> Wrong. Well, okay, uh, what's a generation then? Well, in Psalm 90, for instance, Moses made the observation that the days of man are 70 years or 80 if he has strength. So they say, okay, 1948, uh, we had 70 or 80 years, we can figure it out. Well, maybe not. 
When does that countdown clock, if you look at that as a generation, a group of people living at a particular time, when does that countdown clock start? Remember something. In the 1967 war, Israel possessed East Jerusalem. They are in control of East Jerusalem with one major exception, the Temple Mount. See, Moshe Dayan, when they took uh, East Jerusalem, the Jordanians and the Arabs just thought, well, first thing they're going to do is they're going to bulldoze the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Dome of the Rock, and they're going to rebuild their temple. But Moshe Dayan decided to do something else. He decided to offer an olive branch to the Arabs and say, not only are we not going to build the temple, but he struck a deal with the king of Jordan and said, I want you to put into place a Muslim-based group that oversees the Temple Mount. Make sure it stays safe. It was their way of saying, we're not your enemies. We're not here to destroy or devastate your sacred shrines. We're not anti-Islam. Take it to the bank. We're giving you our most precious territory. Boy, I'll tell you, the king of Jordan took him up on the deal. If you ever go with us on a tour of Israel, you go up on that Temple Mount, you'll probably get introduced to some of these members of a group called the Waqfa, the ones who are in charge of overseeing that. And if you want to get into big-time trouble, I mean big-time trouble, here's what you do. Fold your hands in prayer and look up. Remember, the Waqfa will come up and say, stop that. I saw a couple, in fact, I talked to a, a couple, a genie and Tim, who were there in Israel. They're on the Temple Mount, and they held hands. And remember, the Wakfa came up and said, God, you can't do that. When we were there, a couple held hands. A member of the Wakfa came up with a stick and hit him. I mean, Israel is not in control of the Temple Mount. So I asked the question, has the countdown actually started yet? Did it start in 1948? Did it start in 1967 when they took Jerusalem? Has it yet to start because they don't control the Temple Mount? All of that is just to say, if someone comes to you with some song and dance about, I figured out when Jesus is coming back, based upon the definition of a generation in Scripture, they're woofing. There's too many wild, unforeseen factors you have to take into account in order to make that directly prophetic. But what Jesus is saying is, boy, if you see these things starting to happen, it's going to happen fast. The people who start to see these things are going to still be around when the great culmination of these things happens. How do we know? Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Why do I believe Jesus is coming back? Why do I believe he's coming back soon? We have his word on it. Another miracle, not just Israel, is that Bible that's sitting in your lap today. Do you realize what a miracle it is that God preserved that word and got it to you some 2,000 years after these events? God is faithful to his promise. So what's the takeaway in all this? Three things I want you to understand. If you're going to make sense about living in incredibly chaotic times like the ones we're in now. First one's practical. If you're getting freaked out, if you're having Maalox moments based on the latest and greatest that's coming down the pike through the various media services, push away the internet for a day or two. You don't need all that kind of negative input. In fact, how much different would our lives be if we put away the internet and picked up our Bibles every once in a while? It's something so important for us to do. But three things that I think we can learn from this passage. Number one, the end times are not about Ukraine. 
They're not about the United States. They're not about China. They're all about Israel. Look at Israel, because that's where God is doing his work. Secondly, and this is a tough one for some Christians, and I say that to my shame, love Israel. You got to love God's people. Why? Because God loves them. You know, Skip Heitzig at the pastor's conference said that he's often asked, you know, well, why should I love Israel? I've gotten into conversations with some of my secular friends who've said, Israel, oh, I can't believe we support them. They just take every opportunity they have to stab us in the back. Why do you love Israel so much? You have an answer for that? Let me give you three reasons to love Israel. Number one, I love Israel because I love Israel's God. The God who revealed himself through the people of Israel is my God. And I love Israel for revealing God to us. Secondly, I love Israel's book. The Bible sitting in front of you is written, with very few exceptions, by Jewish people, the sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I love Israel's book. And thirdly, I love, and I hope you do too, Israel's Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot be a healthy, born-again Christian, and be anti-Semitic. You cannot. Let's take that say You can't be a healthy, born-again Christian and be a racist at all, but especially, especially anti-Semitism. There's no excuse for it. And finally, learn from Israel. You know what? <laughs> God was and is faithful to Israel in spite of their track record, God is going to be faithful to you. But he starts, he finishes, because his character never changes. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the same God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the same God who watches over you. Father, thank you that we can learn so much in these last days and these end times that the generations of believers that went before us really didn't have this perspective, this advantage, Israel being back in the land. And I thank you, Lord, that the fig tree's blossoming. I thank you, Lord, that you call us not to become distracted with fruitless and worthless pursuits like trying to figure out dates. And instead, you just tell us to be ready. Be like those dearly loved children who can't wait for the sound of a a well-loved parent pulling up into the driveway, knowing that the daddy's going to be home soon. God, give us that sense of anticipation, that desire to see you face to face. And, and may that desire do what you designed it to do, to pry our fingers off the worldly things we love so much and allow us to be able to live for what is going to last because this world is going out in a hurry but the one who does the will of God abides forever. Write that truth in our heart, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.